0: Hello and welcome to our podcast. Over the course of three episodes, we're going to discuss a serious and often undetected liver disease which affects nearly a quarter of the world's population, non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, which we'll refer to as NAFLD. The more aggressive form of the disease is called non-alcoholic steatohepatitis, which we'll refer to as NASH. I'm your host, Dr. Emerine Danani, and I'm a hepatologist who specializes in liver disease at the Icahn School of Medicine from Sinai in New York City. Today I'm joined by Dr. George Theropondas, he's the Chief of Hepatology at Oshner Multi-Organ Transplant Institute based in New Orleans, Louisiana. We are happy to have Dr. Theropondas join us today to discuss the prevalence of NAFLD and NASH and the importance of early identification. So to start off, first I want to say thank you for joining us on the podcast and we're very excited to have you here today.
1: Thank you for inviting me, it's a pleasure to be here.
0: So I thought we'd start off by maybe just talking a little bit about what we mean by NAFLD and NASH so we can familiarize our audience with what we're actually talking about.
1: Sure. The term NAFLD, non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, is really the umbrella term that includes or that is defined by the presence of excess fat in the liver. That amount of fat is probably defined as affecting more than 5% of hepatocytes and that's considered to be pathological. But the more concerning part of this disease is the non-alcoholic sterohepatitis part, which only affects a subset of the overall patients affected with NAFLD. And the presence of the sterohepatitis part implies that there is inflammation and liver tissue damage and fibrosis formation, which can lead to long-term liver damage.
0: That's a great definition. I'm assuming... When we talk about fatty liver disease or non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, we want to just make sure that we've excluded medications that can cause fat in the liver, but also in addition, rule out other things that can give us excessive fat in the liver, such as alcohol being one of them, hepatitis C, and some other genetic diseases.
1: I think we have to exclude other causes of fat in the liver. And the commonest cause of fat in the liver is, of course, alcohol that causes a very similar syndrome with liver damage, inflammation, steatohepatitis, hepatitis, and even cirrhosis.
0: Great. So just to, you know, we, we hear this statement a lot, and I was hoping you could expound on it a little bit. Why do we call the silent killer?
1: Well, it's called the silent killer because it's a very prevalent disease, and we can talk about the prevalence of the disease in the general population later on, but it's a very prevalent disease. And yet, the majority of patients who have it actually have very few symptoms. So you may be walking out there with some degree of fat in the liver or even with several hepatitis, even with some degree of significant liver fibrosis, but you may have no symptoms. People think of patients with liver disease as having jaundice, perhaps having some problems with fluid retention, such as ascites or edema. But in the early stages of this disease, you may have very little symptoms. Sometimes you may have some very vague symptoms such as fatigue. But these are very non-specific things that a lot of us will have in, even in the absence of this.
0: Yeah, I think I totally agree with that definition of how we describe it. Because if I think about all the patients that I first meet with fatty liver disease, they look at me thinking that they have no idea what I'm talking about because they sit there pretty comfortable, feeling fine. And they have literally only been referred to me because there was some fat noted on their ultrasound or they have elevated liver tests, which we can definitely go to later on. So it's really, really hard to convince someone that they have something that could be so deadly and dangerous when they feel pretty well.
1: Yeah, it's a little bit like hypertension. You know, most Mm -hmm. people with hypertension don't have any symptoms. They're only treated so they see a doctor about hypertension because somebody's measured it and the blood pressure is up. So it's similar fashion. Somebody's measured the liver test that may be a little bit abnormal. Somebody's had an abdominal ultrasound that shows a little bit of what appears to be fat in the liver and then they refer to us for an opinion. So they don't run well.
0: Right. No, I agree with you. Just to get a sense of the burden of disease or what we're really talking about in terms of population or possible population that could be affected. You know, I did mention that it affects about 25% of the global population. Should we maybe talk a little bit about prevalence and if we have information on the NAFLD and NASH prevalence?
1: Yeah, I think there are various estimates of the prevalence of the disease out there. But I think in general, it is accepted that the global prevalence of NAFLD is about 24%. With some higher rates uh, reported in places like South America and the Middle East, maybe around 30%. Asia, maybe a little bit less, but generally in the US and Europe, we're talking about right about the 24, 25% mark. That's probably a little bit of inaccuracy depending on the method of identification of this disease, but that's the estimated prevalence.
0: I mean, that's pretty significant, right? We're talking about one in four persons that we see will have some form of fatty liver disease. If you think about it in that term, that seems pretty significant. Don't you agree?
1: Absolutely, I think we're talking about at least one in four, as you said, and in some places it could be as many as one in three, depending on the part of the country you're in, or depending on the on the actual country you're in, and the prevalence of the other core morbidities that go with it, such as obesity and diabetes, you may have a significantly higher prevalence.
0: Yeah. What about for NASH, which is a more aggressive form of this disease? Is the prevalence, you think, as high as that for just NAFLD in general? Do we have better data for NASH?
1: Yeah, again, the the estimates can vary depending on the study. Some studies in Europe have shown the prevalence of NASH as identified by the gold standard, which is currently a liver biopsy, to be as high as 69% in those with NAFLD. But I think in terms of the overall population in the U.S., there have been some estimates that place the prevalence of NASH itself as up to 10% of the total U.S. population, which is pretty significant.
0: Yeah, because then again, your denominator or what you're really sampling, you already have a high, pretty high suspicion of them having NAFLD. The population that you're sampling is not really sampling of the general population. So, I, yeah, I think I agree with you. It's probably an underestimate and there's probably more undiagnosed NASH and nash that's out there.
1: Yes, absolutely.
0: So, you know, one of the things you alluded to is that you mentioned obesity and type 2 diabetes as being two risk factors. Do we know anything about obesity and type 2 diabetes? That, does that increase our risk for NASH? Do we have any data or prevalence data on that?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I think, again, having these comorbidities certainly increase your risk of having NASH. And I think going back to the the definitions, I think, as we said, NAFLD is the overall umbrella for the disease, and NASH is the subset of people who have more serious disease, which is more likely to progress to advanced liver disease. I guess as hepatologists, we are more concerned with the people that have the advanced Form of the disease than NASH, which is likely to progress. But when we're looking at the patients with NASH, they are much more likely to have diseases such as hypertension, hyperlipidemia, type 2 diabetes, and, and obesity. The prevalence of these comorbidities ranges from about 50% to 80 plus percent. So having one of these other comorbidities is also a risk factor for having NASH as
0: well. So not only having the presence of metabolic syndrome, But having even just the individual components of metabolic syndrome can contribute to your risk of having NAFLD, but specifically obesity and type 2 diabetes can increase your risk of having NASH, right?
1: Exactly, yeah.
0: You know, when I think of risk factors, there's ones that you're kind of dealt with, cards that you're dealt with, such as genetics, gender, and ethnicity. And then I think about the ones that are more modifiable. So like the things that we're talking about, obesity, diabetes, things like that. Do we know anything about any genetic associations or any ethnic groups that this disease may be more prevalent in or we need more information on?
1: Yeah, there's certainly some genetic predisposing factors associated with NASH. I think none of the genetic tests that we have available are particularly useful in clinical practice right now. But more so in terms of ethnicity, we do know that Hispanics have a pretty high rate of NASH, a much higher, well, not so much a much higher, but definitely a higher rate of NASH than white and African-Americans, at least in the US. Race and genetics do play a big role.
0: If I understand this correctly, in Hispanics, there might be an increased uh, risk of you having certain gene factors that accelerates, increases your risk of having NASH and fibrosis and there's even some suggestion that some of these genes that have been identified could also increase your risk of hepatocellular carcinoma. But like you said, these, these aren't things that we see currently in clinical practice, but I think with the evolving precision medicine and personalized medicine, this might be something that we'll be seeing down the road.
1: Yeah, and I think you're raising a, another issue that ultimately a lot of these patients will progress. To advanced liver disease, the accumulation of fibrosis will lead to cirrhosis. And some of these patients will develop the compensated liver disease, but some of them will develop another silent killer, which is hepatocellular carcinoma. And yeah. given the fact that although the individual risk for somebody developing this, if you have NAFLD or even NASH, is relatively low, given that we're seeing such a huge prevalence of this disease in the population, I think the actual numbers of people who will develop this condition in the future is going to be likely huge.
0: Yeah, and especially we also know about hepatocellular carcinoma associated with disease. You know, we typically associate liver cancer or hepatocellular carcinoma with people having cirrhosis. There is some really scary and daunting evidence out there that you don't have to have cirrhosis in people with NAFLD to develop. Liver cancer. It's not the majority of patients, but you know, it comes, you know, we start asking questions as how do we really risk stratify these patients and when do we start looking for liver cancer, which is a whole nother aspect of this disease and the burden we are going to see in the future, which, which can be very scary, not just as clinicians to take care of these patients, but also for what it means for transplantation over the next 10, 20 years.
1: Yes, absolutely. I there are some studies out there showing a very significant prevalence of HCC in non sterotic NASH, which is very concerning.
0: Right. So putting this all together, we're saying that non-alcoholic fatty liver disease and NASH specifically is a growing problem, not just globally, but also in the United States and other Western countries as well. It's also going to be one of the things that we're going to have to deal with when it comes to transplantation and also liver cancer. And we also know that we have these associated metabolic comorbidities that increase your risk for having NASH. So I guess the next question is, why is it so important that we identify this patient population early? And why do we have such a hard time recognizing this?
1: These are my thoughts on this. I think Obviously, as hepatologists, we're very interested in identifying people who are likely to progress to advanced liver disease and liver failure and HCC. However, identifying these people also identifies that they are at risk from the other complications of the metabolic syndrome, such as the cardiac risk and the type 2 diabetes complications. So on one aspect, we are hoping that our other colleagues will be able to manage these comorbidities more aggressively, perhaps, and reduce the cardiovascular risk that is associated with such patients. But I think we're having a lot of problems persuading our primary care colleagues and our endocrinologists of the importance of the liver manifestations of the metabolic syndrome because they are not as aware of the implications of NASH when it comes to what it really causes in terms of liver morbidity and mortality. I think Mm -hmm. we need to increase our education efforts with our colleagues in primary care and endocrinology and perhaps bariatric medicine. We just need to increase their awareness of this. There's also a little bit of being a little bit pessimistic about their ability to intervene earlier Mm -hmm. in the course of this disease. And I'm not going to enter into modalities of treatment, but I think the perceived lack of available treatments feeds into that negative perception.
0: Right. Right. Yeah, I see, you know, that's something that we're definitely going to be discussing later on in these podcast series, a little bit about treatments. And even though there aren't any pharmacological therapies just yes, but there are still lots of things you can do to intervene in this patient population. Thank you for that. You mentioned a couple of things in terms of barriers to patient identification. So I think one of the big ones, like you mentioned, is convincing or putting NAFLD on the radar of our diabetologists, for instance, or even our primary care physicians, but other specialists like our cardiovascular disease and also our bariatric surgeons. What I find very interesting also is that, you know, we have really great society guidelines, uh, American Association of the Study of Liver Disease, that actually do not explicitly recommend screening the general population on alcoholic fatty liver disease, but also our guidelines don't specifically tell us that we should be type 2 diabetics and the obese population either. So besides society guidelines not mentioning that, also we don't have a buy-in from some of our colleagues. Do you think there are any other barriers to patient identification that we haven't discussed?
1: Well, I think patient hesitancy in coming forward for further testing. I mean, the majority of patients who do not show up in my clinic, I mean, most patients when they get referred to a liver specialist do show up. But of the small number of patients who do not show up, they tend to have NAFLD and they perceive Mm -hmm. that as a less important reason for going to the doctor. So whether that's due to prohibitive costs for turning up or whether it's because they just don't feel it's important enough, I, I don't know. But certainly the patient doesn't feel unwell and they don't really see a huge rush to come to the liver
0: doctor because of this. Right. Sounds like we have to put a lot of effort into both patient education and also physician education or clinician education on why we think this is so important, but not just from a liver standpoint, like you mentioned, you know, one of the biggest things that really affects morbidity and mortality in this patient population, especially in those that do not have advanced fibrosis, which... To be completely honest, there's a huge bulk of this population is cardiovascular mortality and type 2 diabetes-related mortality, but also non-liver-related malignancies, which we didn't really talk about uh, because we know there's direct correlation between having obesity and non-liver-related cancer. So putting those type of things on the radar of our colleagues becomes so much more important. We have a lot of work to do in that area too.
1: Yes, I agree.
0: What are you doing specifically to improve early identification efforts and do you have any advice for other people in terms of what can we do to get the message out there in terms of increased awareness of NAFLD and what this means?
1: As a group, they have told us over here we've gone out to various primary care physicians in the area. We've given some very brief lectures to educate them on the disease that we call NAFLD. We've made it easy for them to refer patients to us. And we generally have gone out to primary care physicians, but also we have started targeting the local endocrinologists as well in order to make sure that they are aware of this condition. And they do appear to be aware of it, but I don't think they have appreciated until now the seriousness of this. And therefore, they haven't perhaps until now referred patients to us. Now that we're seeing more and more patients with liver cancer. We're seeing more and more patients with end-stage liver disease, and especially now that hepatitis C has become a relatively frequent cause of transplantation. I think the relevance of NAFLD is increasing and people are beginning to appreciate that. But essentially what we've done is we're trying to educate our other specialty providers about this condition within at least our health system. We've done that to providers, but also to the medical students and all the internal medicine residents who come through our system.
0: Those all sound like great initiatives that you're taking, but you know it's a lot of work for one person. And I think us as a hematology or a subspecialist community, you really need to start getting the message out there and really start to interact with our colleagues who are literally taking care of a bulk of this disease and start creating awareness and working with them, collaboratively with them, in terms of how can we focus on some of the other core morbidities to prevent progression of disease and complications that people like you and I would end up seeing. Do you have any final thoughts before we wrap up?
1: I think it's a condition that affects a large proportion of the population. So there is a lot of interest out there once you, you start going out there to try and spread the word. I think increasingly, even when I'm talking about something that is vaguely related to fatty liver, you know, there's, there's always some members in the audience who for personal reasons will ask me questions about fatty liver disease. So I think it's becoming easier to spread the word and I think people are becoming more aware of it. But I still think there is a lot of work to be done out there to spur these people on to screen their patients and perhaps send us more for staging.
0: Right. And then I think the other part of this, of course, also is empowering them with the information in terms of who is it that you worry about a lot and who is it that you don't worry about so much, which are the high-risk populations, such as those with type 2 diabetes and obesity, that probably need to be seen by a specialist for some form of scarring or fibrosis assessment, but really empowering our colleagues with some tools or pathways to follow you know, in terms of how to manage or risk stratify this patient population, I think would also be very, very important, but also raise the comfort level to be able to take care of this population.
1: Yeah, we agree.
0: Thank you, Dr. Pondis, for your time today and really sharing your thoughts and insight into this disease. We really, really appreciate this. As a reminder, this is one of our three-part podcast series to increase education and awareness around NAFLD and NASH. Please join us next time to discuss non-invasive testing and diagnostics for NAFLD and NASH. This is a podcast series that was developed by NASHnet, which is a global center of excellence really dedicated to improve NASH care delivery. Thank you again and please tune in next time. Thank you.